Hey, Rockbridge, ah, that video is awesome as we gather here this weekend at all six of our locations and those of you watching it online connections to celebrate our moms. Thank God for our moms as we continue in this series called Live No Lies that we've been in for several weeks. You know, I, I know this is all, we all have heard this and we know this is important, but I, I was thinking about the importance of our eyes and where we're looking. You know, like you, when you're younger and even as, as I'm older, we're always looking at our moms, you know, they give us so much cue, they get encouragement, and we cue off of them, especially when we're kids. And you know, somebody needs to make us feel safe, somebody that needs to make us feel like you know we're okay. We look to our moms, and then as we grow up, we're told, Keep your eyes on the road, we're, we're told, Hey, don't look at that. We're, we're just the importance of what we do with our eyes is so so crucial because of this principle that attention determines direction, that attention determines direction. And, and the reason that we honor our moms on a weekend like this is because, right, by so much of our cues in life, our direction in life, our, our standing in life came, comes from what we learn from our moms as we watch them as they loved us. Because attention determines direction. I, I'll, I'll never forget this. You know, when I was uh, growing up, I played high school football, and when we were at away games, I would always try to find my mom. At home games, I knew where she sat because it was, you know, she always sat in this one location, but it's always kind of a toss-up for away games. So I think we're playing like Ringgold, and uh, <clears throat> it's raining that night, and, I, and I'm looking, and I'm like, I can't find my mom. I can't find my mom. And I don't know how I missed her because she's sitting up there with this, like, uh, Texas-sized circus hat. I mean, it's, like, big, and it's, like, bright, all these multicolors on that. There's my mom. But it was always, you just wanted to know that mom was there, wanted to make eye contact, because what moms determine direction. And, and so much of life is if you give something the wrong attention, you get a wrong direction. And so today in Live No Lies, we're going to talk about where we're tempted to look for certain things and, and where we give our attention because Satan knows, as we've been talking about him, Satan knows if we put our attention, if we look to the wrong thing, if we look at the wrong things, or we look at good things and not the best thing, then our direction will be distorted or deceived or dead end somewhere. And, and so we're going to learn from Jesus as we navigate through this, as we look into God's Word. If you have your Bibles, welcome to turn them on, open them up. We're in Matthew's Gospel. We're in chapter 3. Uh, you, of course, read along with me here. Very significant part of Jesus' life. For most of his life, about 27, 30 years or so, he's been in anonymity. We know one thing that happened when he was 12 years old, and that's it. And then at some point, this event occurs. At some point, Jesus begins to go public with his ministry, but it all starts with this event here, and it's highly significant for what we're talking about. So Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan. This is someone we typically call John the Baptist. To be baptized, that's immersed in water by him, by John the Baptist. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus answered him and said, well, allow for it now because this is, the, this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Jesus has in mind that everybody that chooses to put their faith and trust in him will also undergo a water baptism, and it's highly symbolic. It's an act of obedience. It teaches us certain things. And Jesus, in, in identifying himself with us and his mission to save us, also goes through with this rite of passage called baptism. And then here's what happens at his baptism. And it teaches us about the significance of this. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water and the heavens suddenly opened for him. And he saw, and we get all of the Trinity involved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. So the Father affirms and declares Jesus' identity as the Son of God. The Spirit comes, anoints Jesus for his ministry. And so in baptism, we have this beautiful thing going on. And then later on, Jesus says we're to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism sort of becomes like this naming ceremony. Like when our moms, our dads named us, give us an identity. So there's this naming ceremony where we are united with God, where Jesus is identifying himself as part of the Holy Trinity. And then the Father just declares, this is who you are. Be this person. Be the Son of God. Live from my pleasure. Live that I love you. And, and I think about this. We're told so many times, right, to go out and make a name for ourselves. But in Scripture, it's the opposite. We're given a name. We're included in baptism in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of who He is, all of who He's always been, all of who He always will be, we're included. And that's just so incredibly crazy, right? Because we begin everything, right, with do. Go and do. What do you do? God begins with a declaration. We look at life as a performance. Jesus has done nothing that we know of other than one little scene in the temple. And, and so he doesn't begin his ministry with performance. He begins it with an affirmation of God's pleasure. Very similar to Adam and Eve. When God declares them his own, made in his image, male and female, he, he created them and he blessed them. And they hadn't done anything. They hadn't performed anything. That our identity is a gift from God. Now, clearly Jesus has in mind that at some point he's going to invite people to follow him, put their faith and trust in him. And he's going to say, look, those who become my followers, he uses the word disciple, students of mine, are going to also be baptized like I was in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. So there's parallels there. And so the most important thing we can ask ourselves is and understand, what's the significance of this baptism? What's the significance of all this? Because who we are, this is important, who we are is tied to who Jesus is and tied to who God says we are. Just like our identity and who we are in part comes from our moms and our moms help us to understand what's best about us and to help us avoid the pitfalls of what's worst about us. The same naming ceremony affirms the importance of baptism. And I just think we need to get an understanding of, man, who are we? 
Because all of us wrestle with that question, all of us face that question, all of us deal with that question. And where we look will determine our direction because attention determines direction. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, again, there's a naming ceremony where Adam and Eve are created. God said, let us, plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit involved, make mankind in our image a reflection of us according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. All involved in here, our responsibility. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So this uniting, this identifying of who we are and who we're not. We are image bearers of a holy triune God. That's who we are. It's a gift given to us in our creation. This is why we as Christ followers are for sanctity of life. This is we, why we are for understanding our God-given, God-created gender. This is why we are pro-life. This is why we believe you'll never lock eyes with a human being that doesn't have immense worth and immense value because we're created male and female in the image of God. And it, but it goes further. Paul continues to blow this up, and he talks now specifically about Jesus, the same Jesus that was baptized by John. That same Jesus was involved in our creation because he is the image of the invisible God. We are supposed to be image bearers, so we begin to look like Christ as we are students of his being discipled by him. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven on earth who's included in everything you and I are beautiful right all things have been created through him and for him so who do I exist for I exist for my creator I exist for my redeemer I I exist for God the father God the son God the holy spirit that's all involved in my naming that's all involved in my being created in the image of God, being redeemed by his son Jesus and his blood, and being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Psalm 139, another beautiful passage that talks about the value and the worth of all people from conception forward. Not when a mom wants, not when, you know, the mother says she wants to keep or not, but from conception forward. Because who do we exist for? For him. And he says this, it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been, this is true of everybody, remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. But we all know this, there's a problem. So we took God's created purpose for us and we began to do something other than what we were created for in rebellion against him. You ever, your mom's ever say, say to you, you pick up something in the kitchen and you start doing something with it and she's like, that's not what that's for, right? You ever get that line? That's not what that's for. You know, you, you, when you learn how to drive, you get, what's this for? That's not what that's for, right? And, and so God, we, we did that to God. We started using our bodies and our, and, our, and, our, and our desires and our thinking, and we started using it for what we were not designed for in rebellion against our created purpose. But God did something then still because he's gracious and he's good. So look, even before God made the world, he loved us and chose us. What had we done right or wrong? 
even before he made the world, he loved us and chose us. In Christ, included in Christ, which baptism symbolizes, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out, poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. So the beautiful son of God that he just, we just saw in his baptism, that same son went to the cross so we could be adopted because we rebelled against God and lived as aliens to his family and, and, and falling short of his glory. So he did that and he forgave us of our sins. So honestly, we just, just almost sometimes need to stop and say, do you know who you are if you are in Christ? You're loved, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're made in the image of God, male and female. He died for you. He shed blood for you. He adopted you. He, he's loved you since the beginning of the world. By faith, he wants you to, if you're not a Christ follower, by faith, he invites you to put your faith and trust in him, to be baptized and named, included in the eternal now of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all of that, is echoed out of Jesus' baptism. All of that. So Jesus' identity as our identity is to come from uh, to us vertically, not horizontally, as we'll see. And so immediately after that, after this beautiful naming ceremony that's so ripe and rich with meaning and theology, this happens. Chapter 4 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, we could understand. And so this is this whole concept we've been working on of spiritual warfare, that there is a real enemy, that we live in a broken, fallen world where the enemy's tactic is doubt and deception over what has God has said is true or what God has declared to be. So this right here, these two verses, give us a little bit of more insight into spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, remember, is when we get presented with a deception. So honestly, spiritual warfare is not a sign of God's displeasure. This is not, why is this happening to me? No, God is pleased with Jesus. He's just been baptized, and it's been affirmed that he's the son of God. He knows who he is. He knows who he's not. He knows why he's here. He knows his purpose. So it's not a sign of God's displeasure. Now, Satan would love to get Jesus, as well as you and I, off our purpose, but really, if we would learn to look at spiritual warfare not as a sign of God's displeasure, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? But really, what if spiritual warfare is not a sign of God's displeasure, but it's rather an opportunity to live from his pleasure, that we face an enemy who can't touch or take away what we have in Christ. We still get tempted and tested, but he can't take it away when we understand who we are in Christ. But there's another reality that makes this even more challenging, though, that spiritual warfare, which is deception, often occurs at a time, a place, or an area of vulnerability. 
So Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, he's fully God, he's fully human, right? He's just, he's just had this incredible baptism. Now he's hungry. He's been led by the Spirit. He has God's pleasure, but he's vulnerable because he's hungry. Just like you and I have areas of vulnerability. Maybe it's when we're hungry too. Maybe when we're lonely or angry or tired. Maybe it's in this area of, of, of money and power or in this area of, of putting too much emphasis on sports and hobby or on this area of what people think of me or in this area of, of sex and lust and greed. But we all have areas of vulnerability. We all have various vulnerability. But how Jesus is going to combat Satan is paradigmatic for how we also combat Satan in our areas of vulnerability. And look what Satan does. He approached Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, 40 days before, God had already told him, God the Father had affirmed him in his baptism, you are the son of God, I am pleased with you. Tell these stones to become bread. Now, you have heard this too. You might not have heard it this way, but you've heard it this way, prove yourself. If it's to be, make it happen. You've heard it this way. You are what you do. You're only as good as your last bottom line of sales in this quarter. You're only as good as your grades say you are. You're only as good as your coach says you are. If you are the son of God. And so what does he do? He casts doubt on something God has already declared to be true. So we diagnosed this two weeks ago. All Satan does is present an idea for consideration. Are you really? If you are. If you are. He wants them to doubt what God has already declared. And then here's the kicker. Let's look horizontally for what God has provided vertically. Let's look out into the world to determine who I am. I determine who I am by if I can turn these stones into bread. I determine who I am by how many of you like me or applaud me or how certain people think of me. I determine who I am by how much stuff I possess. I determine who I am by how I voted or, or my track record here. I determine who I am by looking out at other people, looking out at the world. So he, all Satan wants you to do is look horizontally for something God has provided for us vertically. If you are the son, I don't need to prove who I am. And then base who you are about something about you. That's what Satan, base who you are about something about you. Religious people say it this way, well, I'm a good person. That's basing who you are, not on what God declares you to be, not on who God has graciously made you and died for you to be, but it's just something about you. Like, is your identity in what you look like? Is your identity in any of those things that are about you? And that's exactly the temptation, right? To look horizontally for what God has already provided for vertically. I'll never forget this, right? So I'm, a, I'm like about to report to my first ship in the Navy. So I get down to Jacksonville, Florida. <clears throat> ship is out to sea. So I get put up like in a, uh, it's called a BOQ, Bachelor Officer Quarters, for a couple of days. And I'm like, you know, I'm an introvert. And, you know, new person, new ship, new job, first ship ever. You know, I'm like nervous, right? And, and, and so what am I doing? I'm starting to look at myself. And so when you look at yourself 
depending on what you're facing, right, and you size yourself up, you start wondering, man, do I have what it takes or am I good enough or an insecurity takes over. You start talking to yourself uh, and, and, and your Satan starts talking to you. You're not listening to God. And, and so I, I'm like, I remember I spent, I spent that, ho- that night in my, uh, in my hotel room. I was like, man, I got to have something to put my trust in and my faith in because the way I feel, uh, I, I'm sort of paralyzed right now. And I never forget, I, and I, I've marked this in my Bible, I, I came upon this incredible promise of God in Psalm 94, 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Who, what God has said has to hit my soul. And it did that night, and I was able to stand up and be Matt Evans as made in Christ. Not Matt Evans, some Navy guy. Not Matt Evans, some junior guy. But just Matt Evans, who I am, who God says I am in Christ. Which speaks to what Jesus does. We counter doubt and deception with God's declaration. We don't debate, we declare. We speak what God's declared. We memorize what God's declared. We go mind hunting in Scripture and find what God has declared, which is exactly what Jesus says to Satan. He answered, it's written. I don't have to debate it, Satan. It's written, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And he refutes Satan. He says, I'm not what you say I am. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to make a name for myself. I'm already the son of God. I already live for my father's good pleasure. Next. And Satan's relentless sometimes. So he continues on with Jesus. He takes him to the holy city has him stand up on the pinnacle of the temple. He says to Jesus, here it is again. Well, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan, listen, quotes scripture. Satan knows the Bible. So I I tell people all the time, never base theology on one verse. Because Satan will use one verse and twist it. And twist it to deceive us into doing something that we might think is okay when really it's not. So he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. They'll support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Just The angels will take care of you, Jesus. So prove yourself, Jesus, if you're the son of God. And Jesus told him, well, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Once again, how do we counter doubt and deception? With God's declaration. Satan, I don't have to debate you. I don't have to talk to you. I just declare what's already been given to me. I just declare truth back to you. That's how you defeat Satan. Spiritual warfare doesn't end just because suddenly you get prosperity or your bad stuff goes away. Spiritual warfare ends when you counter Satan's doubts and deceptions with a declaration of God's truth that you are putting your faith and trust in. He can't handle the truth. I think there was a movie about that sometime. Satan's relentless. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Now, here's what's ironic. Jesus, his t- one of his titles is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isaiah talks about that. 
he comes announcing the kingdom of heaven. It's his first message, right? The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and be baptized. Like his first, his first sermon. So Satan is going to give something to Jesus that Jesus already has. So, hey, I want you to get something illegitimately. I want you to get it horizontally instead of vertically as a promise of God. I want you to get it not God's way. I want you to get it the shortcut way. So, hey, if you'll do all these things, just got to follow. I'll give you all these things if you'll follow down and worship me. So Satan says, go away, Satan. It is written. It's already been spoken and declared. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. So once again, we counter doubt and deception with God's declaration. Satan, God has promised that everything will be put in subjection to the Son of God. That's in Colossians 1. It comes to fruition in Revelation. So Satan, you can't offer me something better than my Father's already promised me. What if you and I said that? Satan, you can't offer me, give me anything better than what my Father in heaven has already promised me. See, if you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child who walks in the blood-purchased promises of God. They are written. They are declared. We live by them. We hope in them. We find joy and peace and comfort and strength from them, and we use them as declarations to counter the doubts and the deceptions of the deceiver. This just illustrates what we've talked about in this series. Here's where, you know, I said last week, what's wrong with the world? Here's what's wrong with the world. There's deception that plays to our disordered desires. And our world says, live by your desires. If it feels good, you want it, you can have it. Do it your way when you want it. It's all that's echoed by the world. The sin and brokenness is normalized by the world. It's normal to follow your heart. It's normal to do what feels good. It's normal. If you think that'll make you happy now, go ahead and have it now. Even though we know it's going to make you miserable later, go ahead. If it feels good, do it, baby. You do you, right? That's all this here. And, and that's where Jesus is. He's in the battle with us. Our God entered flesh humanity entered this dynamic and the whole scene of Matthew 4 is this is Jesus any better than Adam is Jesus any better than Israel Adam was tempted in the garden and failed Israel was tempted in the wilderness and failed Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and what does he do he goes with not the deception. He goes not with the disordered desires. He refuses to live by the normal standard of the world. He goes with what God has declared. But the pattern is clear. The tempter appears in a timely manner with somewhat reasonable arguments and considerations. You're hungry. Have it now. Right? So the tempter appears. Our flesh demands immediate satisfaction. Our flesh wants shortcuts to the ways and the will of God. And the world encourages the self, the ego, to assert itself above God's authority and wisdom. And the bottom line, when you put all those things together, and this is where Jesus was and where you and I are in this, kind of, in this world that we live in, the bottom line, this is all Satan wants to do. 
Quit seeing life through the lens of a relationship with God. See your relationship with God as more transactional and occasional, not the rubric, not the filter, not the lens that you see everything through. So Jesus is sitting here. He's coming out of his powerful baptism where he's joined symbolically with the, with the Trinity that he's always existed with, where he's uh, anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by the Father, and the Father's giving his affirmation, giving his good pleasure, and then Satan comes along and for Jesus, it's unthinkable that he would break relationship or break fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. See, so many of us, you know what our problem is? We see sin and we see following our heart as behavior issues. What if we saw them as a reflection of our relationship with our Creator God, our Savior God, our Redeemer God, our King of Kings, Lord of Lords God? And this God... This God that wants so much to be in a relationship with us that he chose us to adopt us before the world was even created. This God entered humanity and was tempted the same way I am and the same way you were. Look at what Hebrews says. Therefore, we have a great high priest. We have a superior high priest who has passed through the heavens. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. We saw him get named in his baptism in Matthew 3. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to the declaration that he is the Son of God, that we are, his, by, we are part of his kingdom, part of his family, that he has purchased us, chose us, adopted us. Let's hold fast to that confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every every way as we are. He knows what it's like to walk in the broken world, yet he was without sin. So he is the better Adam. He is the new Israel, and he is birthing a new family of disciples of his who are what? Who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are taught to obey everything that he has been teaching us. And he is the one who includes us in his kingdom. Therefore, because of this, what do we do? We approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Where do we look in our time of need, in our time of trial, in our time of suffering, in our time of temptation? Do we look horizontally at the fruit? No. Do we look horizontally at what the world or the tempter offers us? No. Where do we look? Vertically. Vertically that what God has purchased for us, promised to us, and provided for us in his son Jesus Christ is sufficient and superior to what the tempter might offer and provide. So who I am in Christ and what he has promised in Christ is matchless. Satan cannot compare. The temptations of the world cannot compare. If I go with what I have confessed which is based on what God has declared when I put my faith and trust in him. So here's a question. Here's where we started. Let's end here. Where are your eyes today? You're walking in and you're about to leave. Where are you looking today for who you are? Where are you looking today for happiness, hope, and peace? See, looking horizontally, here's how you know you're looking horizontally. Uncertainty in your spirit, 
insecurity in your identity, and stress on your soul. You were not designed, you are not destined, and Jesus did not die for you and I to walk in uncertainty, insecurity, or stress. That's the symptom of looking horizontally. But looking vertically brings rest, peace, and joy. Just like finding my mom in the stands, kind of calmed me down before, a, you know, an intense Friday night football game. But there's something better to look at than our moms. No offense on Mother's Day. The Son of God. The Son of God. On the cross for us instead of us, purchasing our adoption, obtaining promises that bring us rest, peace, and joy. So here's, here's where we'll close. Instead of asking, is there anything wrong with this? Or saying, well, this seems, feels good. It seems okay to me. Would we ask this question instead, church? How would this affect my relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? How would this decision... This choice, if I went down this path, if I waited, if I said yes, if I said no, how would this affect my relationship with God? And our eyes are up, looking vertically instead of horizontally. And as long as our eyes are looking vertically instead of horizontally, we can say, get away, Satan. We can say no when we need to say no. We can say yes when we need to say yes. And we can walk in fullness of life as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ today that is personal and saving based on the faith of what he has done for you and what he offers you in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is new life in him, forgiveness in him, a name included in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then why not right now say yes to him? He said yes to you. He would love for you to go forward and say yes and go public with that yes in baptism. He would love for you to become part of his family, his church, his people. He would love for you to say yes to him because he said yes to you. If that's you, you can pray in just a minute. No magic to the prayer. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. Others of you here today, would you put this question as the question that keeps your eyes off the horizontal plane of looking to the world, looking to others for what you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, church. God, thank you for everybody here today. Thank you, God, for what you've taught us as revealed to us in your holy and amazing word. God, for those today who are ready to begin a relationship with you based on what you have done, Jesus, based on who you are, Jesus, I thank you for them. And they're just saying yes right now. They're saying yes to Christ. They're saying yes to following him. They're saying yes to repentance of their sins, which you have forgiven on your cross. And they're saying yes. God, I thank you for those yeses. I pray they are, will move forward with the next step which is to be baptized just like you were, Jesus, to be included in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit forever and ever. God, help this church to be a place that looks up and vertical to take our next step and the next one after that. And we thank you, God, that you've made it easy. 
because we look to the cross and we look to the empty tomb and we stand in awe of who you are and what you've done. In your name we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.